to Syllabust, a business book podcast that discusses and challenges required reading for management and leadership. So good to be with you. My name is Melanie O'Connor. I'm a strategic communications consultant and coach. Hi, I'm Susan Nelson. I'm an executive leadership coach and really excited to talk about this today. And I'm Rachel Moore. I work in strategic communications and public affairs. I'm excited to talk about innovation and I'm excited that it's almost pumpkin spice season. I know, Rachel, that's so right. We're kind of uh, running toward the end of summer. It's great to be back with uh, friends and colleagues and the three of us doing another episode of Syllabus. You know, what started as our Zoom happy hour, it really did start that way <laughs> over a glass or two of wine. It seems like a long time ago, doesn't Forever it? Forever ago. It feels like we've evolved in flat back to it. And we've um, kind of been on hiatus for the summer, so we're like getting back into it. We are. So thank you to our listeners for giving us just a couple of weeks to catch up on a little vacation time. We're back at it now. Uh, we started that way. It's just a very informal conversation during the initial COVID lockdowns, and it's evolved to what we're doing today, episode eight of Syllabust. Now, this week, we're getting the big case study that we've craved, Rachel, in some previous episodes. Yes. And we're going to talk innovation. The book is Unleashing Innovation, How Whirlpool Transformed an Industry. In just a moment, Susan's going to talk a little bit about the co-authors of this book, Nancy Tennant and Deborah Duarte. I'll also share just a little context about the history of this book and when it was published. But first, Rachel is going to summarize what you need to know about Unleashing Innovation so that you can sound smart about it at your next professional Zoom happy hour. Rachel. So we know that one of the big values people get from listening to um, us talk about books <laughs> and our strong <laughs> thoughts <laughs> uh, is sort of a, a, a value commitment. So um, what we, we propose to do here is to give you a cliff notes about the book uh, so that you can really understand if, if you want to take the time to read, read through. Uh, we're going to give you our very filtered insights on it uh, based on our experience and, um, and our work and what we think uh, what we can bring to that and 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 put this book in in relation to some of the other books we've looked at and also the the work that we do um in our daily lives and finally we'll let you know really if we think the book is a best or a bust whether whether if you're really looking for some insights on management um, on leadership whether or not it's worth your time to read so in a moment, as Melody said, uh, Susan's going to talk a bit about the authors. We uh, we are three women here, and we love it when we can find a book that we can promote by women authors because those books are not often uh, lifted up and talked about in business book circles and mm -hmm. business books lists, best of. So we're loving the fact that um, we're going to learn a little bit about these two women authors that Susan will get into in a second. But here, uh, let's let's just try a little bit and give you the actual lowdown rundown on the this book, Unleashing Innovation. So as Melanie said, the book is the story about what it took to transform one of America's most oldest, in many ways, stodgiest companies. This is really a book about 
how to transform culture and culture change. And so the company is the manufacturing um, pioneer and giant Whirlpool. And um, Melanie will probably talk about this in a little more detail when she talks about the company. But for those of you who may not know, Whirlpool isn't just the Whirlpool brand. They are a family of major brands throughout um, appliance manufacturing. They own Maytag. They own lots of additional other big name brands that you would recognize KitchenAid and KitchenAid mixers KitchenAid um, mixers we love yeah I th- I, and it's so funny because it's literally I think almost every appliance I have ever bought is, is owned by world is like yes. in the whirlpool family well um, absolutely and probably all of our everybody who walk around one. their house and yeah. know that that they have they actually have participated and are the the results, they're getting the results of this innovation that happened when this it's happened. Great. So um, what this was, though, was this exercise in innovation, and, and, and we'll talk about this in more detail, but innovation is, has been the mantra for companies for the last 25 years. But Whirlpool really started to take this seriously around the change of the millennium, as many companies did. <laughs> and it was really a rallying cry from their, at the time, CEO, a, a man named Dave Whitman, who put the challenge out. And, and I think it's important just to, to say here, as, as we do this high-level uh, view, is that this was really part of a legacy project for him. This was almost sort of what he was thinking at as he was getting ready to transition out. And the mantle was really taken up by Jeff Fedig, who was the CEO in 2004, um, which really covers the body of work that that this book looks at that um, the two authors detail. So Whirlpool's chief innovation officer, who was one of the co-authors of this book, her name is Nancy Tennant, um, really was charged with making this happen. And she did have a team of consultants. So they do talk about that in the book. And she has a co-author who is one of her consultants, a woman named Deborah Duarte. And so what they had done, and, and from a high level view, is they, they went about transforming this culture in three ways. They embedded innovation in their culture as a core competency. They looked to leverage some of the existing existing assets they had, which they frame as some of their rational drivers. And we'll, there's a several different sort of pillars that fall into that. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And then finally, they created a structure and looked deep at what it would take to unleash, they use this term unleash, which is interesting. We can talk about that in a minute, uh, emotional drivers. And so we have been talking in the last couple of books just about the importance of how, from a leadership perspective, it is to tap into emotion and address emotion. And they really try to take a sort of structural look at how they could do that and transform their culture along the way. I think it's important to also note, and, and we'll there are lots of case studies that are on this. This whole book is a, is a case study of a particular period of time, 2002 to 2008. But when they were serious about this, and I think this is important to say, like, this was not a one-year exercise. This is not a two-year exercise. This wasn't even a five-year exercise. This was a commitment that, that we sort of see from the perspective of the authors over several years. But it really did translate into results, not just optically, not just from a uh, consumer relationship and brand awareness standpoint, but into dollars and cents. Uh, Whirlpool saw more than $8 billion of revenue from innovative products during this time. So they basically doubled their revenue year on year. So it really is in many ways, not just a case study, but a case study that's successful and has a lot of elements, I think, that if you're looking to see how does change happen, how do we grow 
a competency of innovation within a very, very rigid kind of defined culture already, then we're going to talk about where what they did that worked and where what we have learned from it. But maybe it's probably good at this point to sort of pause, soothe, and talk about the authors and really what we know about them. Sure. That, thank you very much, Rachel. I love that you've set the stage for us. And I love you set the stage around that it was not a check the box flavor of the month project, that this is a long-term sustainable, innovative product projects that they put in place and committed to. And part of that was because of these two authors. Um, they are an amazing dynamic duo, but it wasn't necessarily their first book. They actually did three books together. They've collaborated. They wrote one on mastering virtual teams. Wait, maybe they were actually very, very forward thinking and their crystal ball knew what was going to happen in the future. Can you imagine? So, I mean, and that people, was, everyone's probably that, calling them right now. No, well, and that, that was 1999, gang. Sure, 1999 I mean, they wrote that. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And so with us, so, so it meant that many people had a bit of a uh, foundation for what we've dealt with within this COVID world, um, interacting with virtual teams. But I think that it was probably, it was more around that global, large business perspective. And that was, that was where they did that. And they were ahead of their time. So then in 2003, they wrote a second book, which is strategic innovation, embedding innovation as a core competency to your organization. organization. It was a precursor to the book that we're discussing today. It detailed an innovation journey um, that 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 started at Whirlpool, and then moved into today's book that we're discussing, which is this unleashing of innovation is like letting go is is unthrottling it so that it can actually thrive. Those three best selling books written together really have stood the test of time. Um, Nancy Tennant has gone on to write a fourth book called Transforming Your Company for the Innovation Universe and came out um, in 2019. So this concept of innovation is a, a, a big study for both of them. Who are they? Well, Nancy Tennant is now the Chief Innovation Officer Emeritus for Whirlpool. And Business Week has continued to name her as one of the top 25 global innovation champions. She is teaching at the University of Chicago and also at Notre Dame, where she founded an innovation academy. A big surprise. I don't know any of us communication folks, but she's highly sought after for speaking engagements, both within corporate environments and otherwise. Um, and not only that, she actually coaches with C-suites and um, with those executives around the world. Moving on to Dr. Deborah Duarte, she owns her own consulting firm, and it will be no surprise that, of course, I looked her up on LinkedIn to see where I was connected or not connected with her. <laughs> Are um, you good for you, Susan? <laughs> Wait, how, many, how many connections uh, separation? How you know it. Separation. You know it. One. She and I. See? Just one. Yes. Just one. Um, in <laughs> fact, I, I sent over a request. I sent over a request to her um, earlier, uh, early last week to connect with me. So hopefully I will move her into that first level of connection and be able to have some interaction with her as well. Hold on just a second here. This is back to our first book, <laughs> The Tipping Point. Rachel, that's why you're laughing, right? Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, <laughs> because Susan is just, she is completely 
she blows my mind in terms of how <laughs> so Susan, how good at connecting she is to people. Well, I, yeah, and they, they they aren't. She's not my next door neighbor, and she's not my best friend. I haven't had a glass of wine with her. We yet. love it. Yet, yes, she, she's the connector. This so is if who anybody she is. knows her and she's listening, please accept Susan's invitation. <laughs> We'd love and, to and we'll have from a, you, Doctor George, because we would love, love to, to meet you. you. Yes. And, and, we'll, and we'll have a virtual wine together. She's actually in my realm, right? I mean, she's she is an executive coach. She is the owner of a consulting firm called Creative Solutions International. She has clients that everybody would notice. You're, you're going to recognize all of them across the board. She's an expert in organizational leadership. She um, is working right now at George Washington University as an instructor. Again, she's a certified executive coach, which I absolutely love. So she is one of my gang. Um, She's also an avid runner and biker, and she's quite the yogi. So holds a 200-hour certification from Yoga Alliance. I love that. Yeah, so she's well-rounded, well-known. I like the collaboration between these two women and how they bring that to light and create real clarity in this book. I think it's one of yeah. the, it's one of those that was done with a good amount of information. So with that, I'm actually going to toss it to Melanie to give us a little bit more about the context and the structure and get us started in the first part of the book. All right, Suze, thank you. So Rachel's really given us those high-level takeaways. Susan's talked about the powerhouse women behind this. And, you know, even though this is about transformation in a large organization, the three of us are business owners, owners of our own consultancies. So many of you are, are parts of teams and organizations or owners of your own businesses. Be assured these lessons still resonate. But in terms of the context, so this book came out on July 21st, 2008. And as we research this, of course, we always want to give you a little bit of a scene set on where we were at the time. Well, you know, this is the flashpoint of the Great Recession. And I couldn't remember the exact mm-hmm. date. Rachel, I bet you can, but I couldn't. So. <laughs> you're talking about the, you're the, talking the about crash. GFC? Yeah, well, the GF, talking, the, yeah, the global yeah, fiscal crisis. The yeah. global fiscal crisis. It's summer of 2008. Yeah, exactly. So, so I looked and it was September 29th of 08 when Wall Street lost 777 points to Dow Jones. Uh, That was just two months after this book's release. Now, you'll recall at the time we were in the middle of a presidential campaign between then Senator Barack Obama of Illinois and Senator John McCain of Arizona. And you'll remember that this had a lot of political reverberations clearly at the time. Mm -hmm. Remember how McCain suspended his campaign? Yep. Uh, for for well, a few days and the American manufacturing the the American cars. I mean, so yes. someone was just saying this because the <laughs> a little sidebar here. The uh, incoming freshman class that's starting this year was born in two, for for college was born in two thousand three, and they have no recollection of having to save the American car manufacturers. Wow! Oh my they don't stars! I feel old. I know, <laughs> Rachel. Thank I, you. I thank you for listen, that clarity. There's like a whole list, slippery slope of lists. We won't go there. But I do think that that's a really important caveat because it speaks to what was happening in American manufacturing at the time this book came out. Mm-hmm. Especially large manufacturing, right? Mm-hmm. The, the large 
impactful, to, especially to our economy. So even though Rachel had detailed that this was you know, a long journey at Whirlpool, it's just fascinating that the book ended up landing at this time when companies were were really, it was innovate or die. And you've heard that before, but that was really the case, you know, the subprime mortgage market, the companies were flailing, the housing bubble bursting, and people just losing their jobs. So now there was this pressure because we were in the biggest economic downturn since the Great Depression. And the Great Recession, as we remember, ran, and I looked this up, uh, according to the U.S. National Bureau of Economic Research, the Great Recession lasted from December 07 to June 09. Global GDP declined by more than 5%. And even though, Rachel, those young college students have no memory, we are all old enough to know that the consequences of the Great Recession, they still reverberate today in policy mm-hmm. and in yeah. actions. And, and we I can think, see that. I think what's interesting, too, we talked about having two women writers of this book. Yes. And I, I think it's a you know, we need the the thing about the GFC was that it was also a she session, right? It was. So I think it's really extraordinary to see two women in such a, a such high level role roles leading this charge, and and given the context, of what was what was happening. Yes, we love our sound effects on Syllabus. That's David, our producer, telling us it's time to get into the guts of this book. So let's do that. Get into the guts of unleashing innovation. Now, we'll go briefly here through part one because it's the shortest part of the book. It's a brief introduction. It's a frame for what is the heart of the book. The first part is called The Anatomy of Innovation. It talks about uh, a case study inside Whirlpool through its development of technology called Central Park. This was about linking appliances to the internet and digital add-ons. Sounds, you know, pretty pretty pedestrian now, but this was big time back in the day. And this profile, this case study takes us through ideation, prototype, launch, and post-launch. It's a quick and breezy read before we actually get to the actual anatomy of innovation and defining that. The definition is the combination of the rational framework and drivers and the emotional drivers. So rational on one side, emotional on the other. That's the heart of the book. And that's where we'd like to spend really the bulk of the rest of our time with you. So Rachel, let's get rational. You and I asked for this case study. We got it. I know. <laughs> right? and I, I mean, I, I also just say a word on, this gets into the critique a little bit of, of this, is that they talk a lot about their process here mm. in this book in terms of a case study. But we don't actually see it go from cradle to grave through the various parts of the process, which I think, as Melanie said, they talk about a case study in that first section, which is the duet uh, washer-dryer, if anybody is familiar with that. And again, if you were born in 2003, (laughs) you're not probably aware of what a big deal this was. Colored washers and dryers and matching and like from a design perspective, what a like mind blower that was, but it was, it was a big deal. (laughs) Um, So you learn about it in the book, but um, what, what they get into sort of next is sort of this, so they have this binary sort of between deciding, defining between rational drivers and emotional drivers. And the rational drivers are sort of some of those things that you would just assume if any large company exists. So they looked at what was existing and then built upon it as they took upon this sort of journey to embed innovation in these various parts of their rational driver 
architecture. So the five pieces of that are strategic architecture, management systems, their innovation machine, which they call the iPipe, which we can talk about, innovators and innovate and what they call iMentors, which are innovation mentors. And then the fifth part is managing execution, which really means how did they measure success? How what were their results? So I don't know, I guess maybe we'll, Suze, I, I'm curious to see if there was a particular one of those five that you latched onto and thought, at least from looking at was, I mean, I think we all want to talk about the iPipe, so we can get to that in a minute. But of the other pieces of the rational drivers, what did you find compelling in that section? So for me, it's especially with the work that I do and, and work with a lot of my clients, I really, so first of all, anybody who knows me well knows that I fight structure. I, I, I fight structure, <laughs> I fight systems. I, I tend to be a bit of a rebel if we'll recall some of the other um, books that we, we've uh, covered in our podcast. But what really struck me is this idea around the strategic architecture, that mm-hmm. very beginning piece, because foundationally within any kind of change management that you're working on, if you don't have that vision to begin with, you can't get there. That and is so true. And mm-hmm. so true. for me, that's the most powerful thing because none of this would have evolved and they would not have been successful without this real clarity at the highest level of their framework and, and to get really clear on your vision, mission, and goals, which sounds so, back to use Melanie's word again, it sounds pedestrian, but it's foundational. And I think that as we move forward in businesses and we're moving so quickly, we forget how impactful having that structure and framework and the architecture of that is. And I love that they put that in place so that we had principles and approaches and we were working on the same definitions so that that was it. They had a common, clear definition of what innovation was Bingo. Right back to their goals, which was Bingo. well communicated, well understood. I, I think that's so, I think so many people toss around innovation without defining what it means mm-hmm. in their organization and what, what the, what the mission is. Well, and foundationally, not only if we're talking about innovation, if we're talking about anything from a business change perspective, if you want to create sustainability, if you want to keep business continuity, if you want to elevate business acumen, you have to get really clear. And as the three of us have said many times, you know, um, being really concise and being super clear and getting right on top of those messaging is hard work and it takes time and energy. But because they had those common definitions, the principles, the goals were clear. That's what really resonated for me, not only in the book, but it just was a real nice validation point to a lot of the other work that I see happening in organizations. Mm-hmm. So true. Mm-hmm. Now, what about you? Your What are you, your thoughts were on, on the rational drivers? I am laughing to myself, Rachel, because I think you will think that Susan and I have been body snatched since the last time we did our podcast. Susan goes to structure and I go to measurement. What is happening? <laughs> what, what? Who are what? we? Okay. <laughs> right. Who are we? This is not measurement and, and all of the metrics and the numbers behind that is not necessarily my passion. And this is what I was drawn to in this first section on rational drivers, the idea, because so many of our books have been uh, about thought processes and concepts and discoveries around organizational psychology. This book is about execution. Yeah, how to do it, right, Rachel? Yeah, it's the and how for sure. It's the how, and so you know, it's such a nice accompaniment to the other 
books that we've been privileged to read on syllabus. And in particular, I just love that these women give us a ton of lists in this book. Yeah. Hey, do oh, this, do that. Isn't I, that nice? I like that. I and like the, 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 the charts, the inserts, there's clarity. So what I love, uh, you know, I, the, the metrics, what gets measured gets done. Exactly. Yes. I, I mean, that's basic, you know, 101. And I, I'm, I'm right there with you, Mel. I, I really appreciate it. And, well, so, and I think those measurements are key, like as Susan said, and we talk about this all the time, is from a leadership perspective, their leadership KPIs, yeah, key performance. Thank you. Haters. And that is critical. And we all know that as business women, we're certainly held to account to measure our results. So it was really nice to see and interesting to look under the hood. There were two particular frames that they gave us. And I'll just, you know, on page 120 in the book, it's this embedded innovation S curve. And mm-hmm. how do you how do you measure output and input? You go from launch to proof of concept to scaling. Then you hit that breakthrough moment. And then there's a sustaining piece, a value creating results piece, and then a continuous improvement piece. So that gives you a really nice visual on their innovation journey. Then on pages 128 and 129, you have really just a list of, I'd say, about 50 or so different metrics for embedded innovation. And Mm -hmm. each of these metrics has a touch point along that S curve. So if you are working to innovate inside your company and which company isn't inside your organization or your team, I think this is a fantastic place to say, well, what should I be doing? What should I be measuring? And, you know, 128, 129, everybody, this is the page where you can think about measuring innovation. And I think that S-curve explanation is one of the best ones I've seen in terms of change management and transforming your culture. Sure. Because it does a really good job of setting expectation that this is, you know, not a short-term exercise and that there are multiple factors that layer over it. And how, as Susan said, it's so important to define that criteria in order to keep the momentum going. So I agree with that. I would say the, you know, the piece obviously that stood out to me, and I think this is sort of where they spend the bulk of the attention in the book, is their particular innovation structure, what they call their I-pipe, which is their innovation pipeline. Mm -hmm. And what was struck me as interesting about this was that it evolved over time, right? So it was not something, there were bits and pieces of it in various places throughout the the, um, organization or throughout the company. And they worked over time to kind of migrate them all into um, into what they call, what is essentially an end-to-end system. And when we talk about end-to-end systems, that means that they brought it all in-house. They did not offshore any part of this to anybody else. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating is is that they take a lot of the ideas and practices from entrepreneurs and from startups and put that in-house. So they created things like innovation boards internally which is where people go to fund a project, right? So rather than, you know, in a big traditional company and having to go through the big traditional channels of planning and budgeting and stewardship and, you know, once a year cycles, they created these very specific special boards, which basically had a lot of money to play in. And a lot of, you know, and they had these 
have these eye mentors, these guidance to really shepherd people through it. And that is not unlike the startup environment where you get VC funding, you're in an incubator, you're given in many respects freedom to fail within a very structured bubble that's going to catch you, right? I love this, Rachel, because one of the key concepts in the book, and they came back to this many times, particularly in this iPipe discussion, was the idea of there needs to be a process so that innovation doesn't get stifled. Doesn't die. Doesn't die. And there needs to be a process so that our quote failures, the things that don't make it to market, don't attach with themselves an organizational uh, criticism, a history of, wow, so-and-so really flopped when they thought about X. No, that those are good, quote, good failures and that they need to be held up as such. So for me, it's a reminder that, um, you know, that right now, in, in especially within the IT world, agile is such a big deal. Mm-hmm. And this was really a precursor to being agile, to being able to fail and fail fast and, and, and learn from those mistakes. And how do you integrate those and move them forward? Um, and it's foundational from, uh, from a way that I think that a lot of other things have spurred off of it that may not have been directly related to it, but this concept of, you know, that that all mistakes are good because we've got an opportunity to learn from them. Um, Much like, oh, I just, my brain just, just left me Uh, much, much like with um, Edison saying that he learned 10,000 ways that a light bulb didn't work. Did not work. There you go. Right. He didn't fail 10,000 times. He found out 10,000 ways that didn't work and continued to grow and learn and evolve the ideas. And I think this is foundational for innovation. And I love how they put it together and really appreciate how they took it into a very large behemoth organization to make it work. That for me was what was really impactful. And I think uh, the thing and we'll get here in a minute to Susan talking about the emotional drivers, but I think one of the big takeaways with the rational drivers is that they leveraged the assets that they had and they used, but it was a commitment to using what they had and, and evolving what they had to move it forward. So it wasn't an endless stream of money that they just poured on this. They had processes, they had, they had metrics in place. They did this intentionally and every element of leadership of the company was committed to this from day one. And they're frankly, you just can't see any other way that this would have happened. And that's the way it worked. I really so, Suze, what about the emotion, emotional drivers? Well, and so this for me is really important because there's this awareness that we can put the structure around it. We have the rational drivers, but what makes things happen are the people. And if you want to truly empower and motivate and influence people, you have to start from an emotional standpoint. I really appreciate the fact that the authors came in and really started to try and quantify these factors in a different way to lead engagement from an emotional perspective. And they did it in, in, in five different categories, which are learn, dream, create heroes and spirit. But it's really, if you take this and pull it out, it's a route about defining the culture in a different way. And they're defining the culture through their people and how they engage with the work. So I'm curious, I'm going to start with you, Mel, first. 
of those five, what really resonated for you? All right. I'm going to return to the person the two of you recognize now. (laughs) 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 We'll see. We'll see, Susan, if you do. Okay. So my body snatcher identity is gone. Hey, I, you know, I wound up in create. I don't think it's a surprise. I see Rachel nodding. To me, that is of the five the the central and most important you know you wouldn't the other two the dreaming and what was the first one the dreaming and the learning lead to creating right and then the spirit and the heroes are about what was created so to me that's really the the tipping point not to bring malcolm back into the conversation again but that's the tipping point here and susan when you said culture that resonated in this section for me a culture that is receptive to creativity. And, you know, this is about embedding this in the organization as a value. You don't have, right. You do not have to tell people creating is good. Each of us intrinsically, and this is about the extrinsic drivers, the compensation for innovation that is part of the DNA inside Whirlpool's compensation system. So those are the extrinsic drivers, right? I'll get paid more, I'll get promoted. Mm -hmm. The intrinsic drivers are what make creativity so critical because each of us in some way wants to create. So developing that receptive culture and all of the processes around that, giving it a structure, giving it a time and a place and a real structure. So committing to this with the investment of time, it's not just the dollars, it's the time. And then providing these tools to enable creativity. I think that, uh, you know, again, I love my lists. I was just going to say. <laughs> I love, and, and so on page 181, everybody, there is an environmental assessment for embedded innovation. And this is around creating an environment that fosters creativity. Yeah. Some of the metrics on here are just fantastic. It will hold people accountable to this idea of structure. And, and, you know, what we know from what we've read on Syllabus already is if you foster a creative environment, you're more likely to retain talent, you're more likely to attract talent, and you're more likely to simply grow the bottom line. Yeah, I think that's so important. I think, you know, relative to the structure and the metrics is that it it made it sustainable. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the biggest challenge in instituting change is how do you sustain it? How do you innovate the innovation, right? Mm -hmm. And so having metrics and having those systems around things that are tend to be really intangible, like creativity, like Mm -hmm. learning, like collaboration. Mm -hmm. And they found a way to do that. And, and I think, you know, this is the the preeminent value of this book because it takes these kind of fluffy, touchy feely concepts that some people are saying, wow, that just sounds, how do I capture that? And it really does give you intentional, specific ways to measure. Rachel, what about you? What, what really resonated for you in this part of the Um, book? So I'm, I actually really love the piece about dreaming. Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, which seems really far out and wacky when you talk about, you know, American manufacturing. <laughs> <laughs> You've been body snatched too, my practical friend. Um, but I think what, it, you know, this, it, it goes back to what Melanie was saying is, is that it's when you're working through transforming a culture, you're talking about values and you're talking about reinforcing what it's going to take to move you forward. And so having, um, 
having the validation of things like dreaming uh, and giving people the mental space to, and it's a build off of that creation in a sense, because the dreaming is really, what if there were no boundaries? What if people Mm -hmm. told you no one said no? What if anything could happen? What if you could not fail? What What if you wouldn't fail? Right. And also talking, and this gets a little bit into, you know, that thinking about the employee more holistically and giving them time and space that maybe not is not in an office or in a lab or in a workroom that's with on a specific project, but giving them space to think outside of that actual project. Um, Google does this really effectively. Google has Google employees are actually supposed to spend 20% of their time working on personal projects. They have a name for it and I can't Mm -hmm. remember what it's called. We'll look it Mm -hmm. up. Um, But things like Google Glass and other Google innovations have come out of these, what we could probably call in this context, dream projects. They're they're Um, personal pet projects, right? They're personal projects of where they're just giving yourself the space to think about things in a limitless way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, um, so I, I like all of those as well. And, um, I actually was drawn to spirit in this one. Mm. I I like the fact that, like I said, that they look to quantify these emotional drivers in the book. You'll see within each of these sections, there is this embedded the embedded innovation piece, but how the intersections of those happen. And so when you're doing one, how does it intersect with another? And so you'll see that in each of these chapters and how it shifts. I really liked, like I said, this spirit space, simply because so much of the time when you are driving innovation, you're driving change, you're managing what's different within an organization, we forget to take the time to stop and celebrate. And Mm, human beings are designed to celebrate. If we go back to some of the work from Brene Brown that we've learned and some of the other really important things that are there. But what happened here is that they actually worked at it. They put it in place. They, again, they measured it. Um, and that's how we continue to keep people motivated. It's that way of really acknowledging the big rewards, but knowing that recognition can really drive behavior and continue this cycle. So if we move into spirit, we can get people to support the rational drivers. If we move into that place of celebration, then they want to dream again. They want to create, they want to learn. They want to make mistakes and fail and fail fast so they can do it differently. So for me, that was really important. It was a really good reminder that when we're driving business and we're driving change, we have to stop and turn around and reflect on what's important, what worked well, and really give everybody big high fives. So I loved that. It also reminded me of... um, work that I've done with Southwest Airlines when I was working with them and, you know, their, their spirit. And so when I think about organizations that are really impactful, you know, you mentioned Google, those places have got spirit and they celebrate, they celebrate the successes, they celebrate the failures, they celebrate the people. You know, it makes me think of NASA. It really does. Mm -hmm. We've all been privileged to, to work uh, to work with the agency and what's where is there a greater spirit than a spirit of exploration and they certainly do celebrate they certainly do recognize and i think you know in this in this pandemic world there's such a need to belong because of all the social yeah. disconnection that's been put in play with the virus so 
this idea of spirit and who we are and having an identity and belonging to that. Mm-hmm. To your point, Susan, this is such a core human driver. I actually wish there had been a little bit more context around this piece because yeah. I, th- I think it ties into a really important part in, in embedding and sustaining change and transformation, which is motivation. Mm. Um, how you motivate. It's not just engagement and employees. And I think we would all actually love to know a little bit about how to motivate people right now because we need <laughs> to motivate lots of people to change in order to, to move forward with where our world is right now. Um, so I, I do wish there had been, and I know it's probably really tough. I mean, I think the amount that they were able to share about what is essentially very proprietary process here is is huge. Um, so they they clearly were able to to publicly talk about some things, but I I would love to have just known a little bit more detail on how they face those motivation challenges with their. We always ask for more, don't we? We always ask for more because never, of- never satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the curiosity piece, isn't it? Which is the heart of all of this. And, and the, the human leaning that, that these two ladies seeked, sought to cultivate. Sure. Hey, with that, Mel, why don't you wrap up the book for us? Sure. So Suze, you know, after this section on emotional drivers, there's a brief conclusion and it's called the innovation journey. And then there is an epilogue called dragons be here. I love that name because it refers to right the old fashioned the maps. maps, right? They didn't know <laughs> there be dragons. What, there be dragons. They didn't know where the oceans ended and the land began and what was beyond the known world at that time. So they would put dragons be here. So we'll talk about that. Uh, each of us will share a takeaway from that closing part of the book. But before that, the topic of criticism. Now, we always take a look at what others have said about the book we're featuring. In this case, as far as criticism, there is not much, at least not much that that I could find. We did see multiple reviews that talked about how solid and actionable and well-structured the recommendations are. And I, you know, I think the three of us have agreed that that, that is true. Uh, there was a little bit of talk that the section on iMentors could have been a bit meatier, Mm-hmm. The, the section on spirit, again, we want more of that confidential behind the scenes information on the how. Um, and there was also a bit that some of the key themes of the book are repeated to the mm-hmm. point that it gets a little bit tiresome. I, you know, I can see that. Uh, but I think they're there to keep reminding you, right? Hey, this is important and here's why. Overall, reviewers in the major business publications at the time appear to have really embraced this as a thoughtful read on a winning approach to innovation, especially at a big organization. So after all, at the time, you know, this was one of the biggest corporate change initiatives ever attempted. Mm-hmm. So in the innovation space, this is a foundational experience and case study. So let's talk about the closing section of the book then. What do you take from this closing section? I'll start with you, Suze. So um, I, it was a nice wrap up. Like you said, there was a lot of, of repetition and that sort of yeah. thing. I just, I liked that. I liked that it was closed. Um, so as many of the other books that we've talked about, there's been a lot, there was a lot of information to dig through and siphon through, and it was almost too much. And this one, I felt like it was just not quite enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that space, I just, I was, I was just looking for a little bit more. What about you, Rachel? What, what resonated in this closing section of the book for you? Yeah, I agree. I, I was waiting for like a, a button of a case study here. Um, but wait, there's more. Yeah. Or just like, <laughs> oh, 
after the fact, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I thought it would have been strengthened if there had been another, again, a little more granularity of a case study or a, um, but I think they reiterate an important point, which we have talked about here, but probably haven't um, emphasized as much is that the, this was a success because the leadership of this company committed to it a thousand percent. Amen. And as a leader goes, so goes the culture. So on every single level, leadership not only was bought in, but drove it. And you know, that really, uh, Rachel, you just underlined what I think was, was my key takeaway here at the end when they talk about flexible and committed leadership is key. Mm-hmm. Those, those drivers, those systems have to be instituted at the top before the innovation is unleashed emotionally throughout the organization. So you're right. You know, leaders have to lead in this innovation space in order to empower everyone else. And, you know, this, this portion, uh, there be dragons. I thought it was also, I thought I liked the touch there on the impact of innovation among several people at Whirlpool who were cited and how they took those lessons and brought them into the community. That was nice. Wasn't that nice into, into meaningful projects and meaningful pursuits outside work. And that reinforced, of course, their value as innovators at work. That was a really nice and powerful way to end. In other words, your lessons translate into all, all facets of your life, including innovation. And that really is the key to and the the example and reward of changing a mindset because it's not just I ch- I put on this innovative mindset at work. It's mm-hmm. I, I've literally rewired my brain to to be this way to be to have a growth mindset in all areas of your life. That sound reminds us that it's time for best or bust. Um, as a reminder, each episode we share with you, we provide our perspective on what we believe is a best, a must read, go for it, the whole book, dig in or a bust, you probably got what you need because we've provided it for you in this particular <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, and, and you might not want to waste any more time on it. Um, so Melanie, let's start with you. Unleashing innovation, a best or a bust? I'm doing the unexpected today, ladies. Uh, you know, you expect a best from me every time. And for the first time, I'm actually going to give it a gentle bust. And that is not because it wasn't absolutely useful and actionable. And we've cited areas where it is. For myself, I have 10 books on my nightstand. And after listening to Syllabus, I'm, I would feel like in my situation as a small business owner that I have what I need. That being said, it's a great book and it's well worth the read, particularly if you're working in a larger organization. For myself, I'll give it a gentle bust and say, I appreciated the summary we provided here in the podcast. Thank you, Melanie. Hey, Rachel, what do you think? Yeah, I I tend to agree with Melanie. It's a bit of a bust for me too. I think if you um, are interested in the history of a company and the history of sort of what was going on in the early aughts and um, how people were trying to tackle something like this, it's fascinating. 
I think if you're looking for tools going forward, or if you are a millennial or Gen Z in the workplace, this is probably not going to just add a lot of value for what you, you're probably already working in a a much more innovative (laughs) role. You could probably teach us more than necessarily the lessons that you would gain from this book. That said, as Melanie said, it's a very quick read. If you're looking for, um, if if you do work for a large heritage company um, where you're just you know, baffled with how, how could a big, huge company do this? Um, it's a quick and easy read. So, and I will go last and it looks like we have a hat trick ladies, because for me it was, I will use Melanie's language too. It's a gentle bust. I think that it was, it was fun from a historic standpoint to read. Mm-hmm. I also, um, if you're looking for something to be able to quantify some of those emotional drivers you might be able to pick up a nugget or two from the book, not necessarily uh, a need to read the entire thing. There are some really great nuggets here, um, but from a holistic standpoint to read cover to cover, for me, um, you probably have what you need already. So with that, um, I'm actually going to drop it back, drop the mic back to Rachel, who is going to uh, let us know what our next podcast is about and what you can look forward to hearing from us next. Yes, so I'm stoked. Our next book is going to be picking up on uh, what we were talking a little bit before about on motivation. We are going to read Drive, The Surprising Truth of What Motivates Us by Daniel Pink. If this is actually, I'm excited because I have not read a Daniel Pink yet. I haven't either. I can't wait. We are Daniel Pink first timers. Looking for it. <laughs> so we're excited to, to uh, he is a, a, he is one of the mavens of the business book lists. So we love it when you're reading along with us. You can always request this book from your local library, or you can support your local indie by buying on bookshop.org. Thank you so much for all of those who have been listening along with us and who uh, maybe caught up over summer break with some of our early episodes. We really appreciate you. All of our show notes from this episode and from all our other episodes are, will be available on our website. We also have our syllabus page on LinkedIn. We would love it if you gave us a follow so you can know exactly when our next episode is dropping, what you thought about some of the books if you're reading along, or if you've got suggestions for further books. Um, and if uh, to help us keep growing and keep, uh, keep more book talk alive, uh, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Mel? There would be no syllabus without the amazing members of our team whose voices you don't hear. Syllabus is produced by the intrepid David Van Ness. Our original theme music is written and performed by Chanta Chung with Rocky Nelson on percussion. And you can find more music from both of these talented artists on Bandcamp. Most importantly, thank you, our dedicated listeners, for spending time with us exploring Unleashing Innovation by Nancy Tennant and Deborah Duarte. We hope you'll join us next time. We're excited, as Rachel said, for Syllabus Episode 9, Drive by Daniel Pink. Until then, keep innovating and take good care. (laughs) 